Turn with me to Nehemiah chapter 7. Nehemiah 7, and the title of tonight's message is God Brings His Chosen Home. This is yet another example of the faithfulness of God, which we have seen in every chapter of Ezra and Nehemiah. And tonight what we're going to see is that after 90 years of exiles and their children and their grandchildren being back in Judea for the first time, first time ever, Jerusalem is going to go back to normal. It's going to be an inhabited city by the people of God. They're going to come home. And if you're doing the math, it would be the first time in 160 years that Jerusalem is back to normal. They're going home. Now, Nehemiah had two basic missions. We've said this before, two goals. When he returned from the Persian city of Susa, from attending the king of the empire to come back to Jerusalem. His first goal, his first mission, was to lead the reconstruction of the walls in the city. The second goal, though, was to lead the reformation of God's people to a covenant-keeping and obedient people. After all, the whole point of rebuilding the wall in the city was to give this glimmer of hope that God might restart the nation of Israel, that he might replenish them and restore them. And the first six chapters in Nehemiah have primarily been concerned with the reconstruction of the walls and the city amidst great opposition. We saw opposition both outside the walls of the city and inside from some of the leaders right there among the Jews. But now the wall is complete. The city is secure on a military and physical level. Now Nehemiah turns his attention to the second part of his mission, the reformation of God's people. And that's where we pick up the story in Nehemiah 7, verse 1. Now it happened that the wall was when the wall was rebuilt and I had made the doors to stand and the gatekeepers and the singers and the Levites were appointed. We'll stop right there for a moment. Verse 1 here gives a contrast and it really forms the end of this part of the story. The first part of the story. You recall all the way back in Nehemiah chapter 1, Hanani, one of Nehemiah's brothers, had returned from Jerusalem, gone all the way back to the city of Susa, and given this report. In Nehemiah 1, verse 3, the remnants there in the province who remain from the captivity are in great calamity and reproach. And listen carefully. And the wall of Jerusalem is broken down, and its gates are burned with fire. That's a contrast here to verse 1 in chapter 7. The wall is rebuilt, and the doors or the gates are now standing. They're in place. Verse 2, that I commanded Hanani, my brother, and Hananiah, the commander of the fortress, to be over Jerusalem, for he was a faithful man and feared God more than many. So Hanani is mentioned again, Hanani, my brother, and, and it should be Hanani, my brother, that is Hananiah. It's the same man was made commander over Jerusalem. Now we have this description here of Hananiah that pushes back against any possible charges of nepotism or you remember from the last chapter that Nehemiah was being charged by his enemies with trying to set up a kingdom of his own that he was going to be king and so this pushes back against that it gives the qualifications of Hanani or Hananiah he was a faithful man and he feared God more than many and this fits right in with the theme just two chapters earlier in in chapter five We saw the theme of fearing God as being highly prized. Chapter 5, verse 9, should you not walk in the fear of our God? Chapter 5, verse 15, I did not do so because of the fear of God. And so we have this set up now. The city is ready to be repopulated, ready to be occupied. Now we transition to the situation at hand. Verse 3, then I said to them, the gates of Jerusalem must not be opened until the sun is hot. And until they are there standing guard, they must shut and bolt the doors. Also have guards from the inhabitants of Jerusalem stand, each at his post and each in front of his own house. Now here's the crux of the situation. Now the city was large and spacious, but the the people in it were few. And the houses were not rebuilt. The wall is rebuilt. The temple is rebuilt. The courtyard is rebuilt. The fortress to protect the city and to protect the temple are rebuilt. But the city now needs to be occupied. It needs to be taken once again. So now the question is, who is fit 
to live in the city? Who is spiritually qualified? And that becomes the issue of this entire chapter. Verse 5, Then my God put it into my heart, and I gathered the nobles, the officials, and the people to be recorded by genealogies. Then I found the book of the genealogy of those who came up first, and in it I found written. And now this is a quote. These are the people of the province who came up out of the captivity of the exiles whom Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, had taken away into exile and who returned to Jerusalem and Judah, each to his own city. So Nehemiah gathers all the people, all the descendants of those who returned 90 years earlier to take a census. And this was giving people an opportunity to have their lineage proven as those as being descended from the original returnees because only those descended from the actual Israelites would be allowed to live in the city. This was not an open free-for-all for anybody in the whole area. Only Israelites were to live in the city. And Nehemiah was attempting to return them to the covenant purity that God demanded as part of his gracious covenant with his chosen people. And now we get a reminder of the original returnees. I won't read the whole list to you, but in verses 6 through 62... We get the list of families who came almost 90 years ago from this point. And the list is identical to the list given in Ezra chapter 2 at the time of the return. There's a couple of variations probably due to some copyist errors. But other than that, it's identical. The list is perfectly reproduced. And now we see part of the reason for the census. Skip all the way down to verse 63. Of the priests, the sons of Hobiah the sons of Habaz, Hakaz, the sons of Barzillai, who took a wife of the daughters of Barzillai, the Gileadite, and he was called by their name. These searched in their genealogical records, but it could not be found. Therefore, they were considered unclean and excluded from the priesthood. And the governor said to them that they should not eat from the most holy things until a priest stood with Urim and Thummim. So what's happening here? Some of the men claiming to be priests, claiming to be Israelites, and not only Israelites, but leaders of the people, they couldn't verify it through family records. And so what happens to them? They're, they're cut off. They're excluded. Until a verified priest could seek the Lord's will on the matter with the Urim and the Thummim, and, and we're not told what happens here. That's between them and the Lord. These objects, the Urim and Thummim, they're little objects that are, aren't really described in Scripture, but they were some way that the priests used to determine the will of God, casting of lots of some sort, certainly not appropriate for today under the new covenant. We have the Holy Spirit. We have the word of God to lead us and to guide us. And the summary of the original returnees is identical to the summary in Ezra chapter 2. Verse 66 here, the whole assembly together was 42,360 besides their male and their female slaves, of whom there were 7,337 and they had 245 male and female singers. Their horses were 736, their mules 245, their camels 435, their donkeys 6,720. Donkeys win as far as the animals go in this particular case. Now, why is this here? This is to remind us that the original returnees, they came back with tremendous wealth. They had enough servants that they basically had one servant for every six Israelites. They were well-stocked, they were well-equipped to rebuild the temple and then later the wall and the city. In verse 70, some from among the heads of fathers' households gave to the work. The governor, this is talking about the governor 90 years earlier, not currently. The governor gave to the treasury 1,000 gold drachmas, 50 bowls, 530 priests' tunics. Some of the heads of fathers' households gave into the treasury of the work 20,000 gold drachmas and 2,200 silver minas. That which the rest of the people gave was 20,000 gold drachmas and 2,000 silver minas and 67 priests' tunics. The governor mentioned in verse 70 is not Nehemiah, but this is the original Persian-appointed governor of Judea who apparently set quite an example for Nehemiah many decades earlier, and he personally contributed to the rebuilding of the temple. So now the census has been taken... But the people who would be chosen have not yet moved into Jerusalem and the, the chapter ends at that point. It ends on that situation, verse 73. So the priests, the Levites, the gatekeepers, the singers, some of the people, the temple servants, and all Israel lived in their cities. 
Then the seventh month came and the sons of Israel were in their cities. So now before they can move to this phase of God's gracious continued restoration of Israel, they're going to gather together as a nation. They're going to renew their covenant loyalty to the Lord. We're going to see this in chapters 8, 9, and 10, but that's for next time. What happens next in Nehemiah 8 through 10, the covenant renewal of God's people, this is actually quite a contrast. This is in stark contrast to what happened in Ezra 3 after the first time that this list was given. The first time this list of the returnees was given, they set up an altar before God on the foundation of the new temple, or rather before the foundation had even been constructed, and they they began to offer sacrifices, and that's good. And we said that was good at the time. But compared to what happens in Nehemiah 8, 9, and 10, the heart work of renewing covenant, there's really quite a difference. In Ezra 3, we could see this in many ways as an eagerness to begin the outward manifestation, the outward representation of true faith. In Nehemiah 8, 9, and 10, what we see is an emphasis on the inward manifestation of faith, the heartfelt repentance and what you're going to see in chapter 8 next time is this brokenness before the Lord. And so all in all, Nehemiah 8 through 10 is a better follow-up to this list than Ezra 3 was to the first list in Ezra 2. But we're going to save that for later. For the rest of our time tonight, I'd like to camp out on this momentous occasion of Nehemiah qualifying Israelites to be citizens of Jerusalem Because there's much for us to ponder, much for us to reflect on in terms of more universal spiritual truths. And I'd like to really spend the rest of our time tonight just on some application. Because this this is very applicable to us in the church. I'd like to point out three applications that this text provokes as we think together about these universal truths. And I'm just going to give you a key word for each application. And we'll camp on each one of them for a bit. First key word that we see here, I want to just say, is sovereignty. Sovereignty. God chooses His people. It's His decision, His gracious choice. God sets up the parameters. In this case, the parameters are national, that to be part of the rebuilt Jerusalem, you had to have a verified genealogy going all the way back to the original returnees. But this is just one of many different times We see God making a choice of certain people all throughout the Bible. And what I'd like to address for a bit is is just kind of asking the question, why do so many people have a hard time with the idea of God's making a choice? Of God choosing His people. Why do people have an idea with this? Or a a difficulty with this? of, Of God being the arbiter of who enters His city and who doesn't? And maybe we have a little argument over that. But the real pushback comes with the idea of God being the one who chooses people for salvation. That's where we begin to have difficulties. That somehow Ephesians 1.4 saying that God chose us in Him before the foundation of the world. That somehow Jesus saying in John 17.6 that God in the past gave Jesus certain people out of the world guaranteed to belong to Him. That somehow Paul saying in Romans 9.18 that God has mercy on the ones He chooses to have mercy upon and He hardens the hearts of the rest. That somehow Peter saying in 1 Peter 1, 1 and 2 that Christians are chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, that somehow these passages cannot possibly mean that God made a completely independent choice of the people He chose to save. Why is that so difficult to believe? Let me suggest some reasons that this seems so difficult for some to believe. Because here in our text in Nehemiah, it seems very matter-of-fact they were considered unclean and excluded. There's no explanation. There's no, there's no reasons given. Why is this so difficult? Let me suggest a few reasons. The first reason that this may be difficult to believe is an immediate focus on election instead of on the holiness of God. When you have an immediate focus on the doctrine of election instead of on the holiness of God, you run into a problem. You, you run uh, you run over yourself, you haven't given yourself the opportunity to consider the bigger issue. Now, what do I mean by this? An immediate focus on election instead of on the holiness of God. The smaller God is, the more God is seen as having to cave into human reasoning and human desire, the more we tend to resist the idea of God making sovereign choices. 
Ideally, if a believer in Christ who has difficulty believing that God makes sovereign choices would spend a year not worrying at all about the doctrine of election, but instead studying the holiness of God, that God is three times holy, 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 that God is unapproachable light, that God is separate, God is other, that God is completely unchangeable, unassailable, He can't be manipulated, He can't be altered, He can't be convinced of anything. God is beyond description. That those in the Bible who are confronted with the glory of God either die or wish they were dead. But when you instantly jump to the doctrine of election, while your view of God is still fairly small and, if I could say this, American Christianity influenced, then election makes no sense. But when God is all and you are nothing, then election is nothing but grace and mercy and thankfulness and gratitude, isn't it? So I think one reason it's difficult is an immediate focus on election instead of on holiness. So the second reason this might be difficult to believe, a misguided high view of mankind. A misguided high view of mankind. A high view of mankind is due to biblical illiteracy. It's also due to preachers trying to make people feel good about themselves instead of trying to convince them to fear God. My job is not to make you feel good about yourself. If you're not a believer in Christ, my job is to make you feel horrible about yourself until you come to faith. Then you can let the Lord make you feel good about yourself since everything good about you is from Him anyway. Our job is to influence you to fear God. And as a result of this misguided view, our anthropology, that is our study of mankind, can tend to be shallow and very self-serving. But the fact is, is that the Bible teaches the total depravity of man. Classic verses. Jeremiah 17, 9, the heart is more deceitful than all else and is desperately sick. Who can know it? In Genesis 6, 5, then Yahweh saw that the evil of man was great on the earth and that every intent of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And of course, the nail in the coffin, quite literally here, Romans 3, beginning in verse 10, there's none righteous, not even one. There's no, none who understands There is none who seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. There is none who does good, not even one. But when you have a high view of mankind that we're basically good or that we have the ability to choose, that this whole idea of there's none who seeks for God can't possibly be true, that this idea of there's none who understands can't possibly be true, that this idea that there's none righteous, not even one, can't possibly be true. Listen, when you have a high view of mankind, you view it as a travesty of justice when God chooses some for salvation. And maybe we don't quite say it out loud, but in our hearts we say, how dare God choose some and not others? No, the true shock is this. The true shock is that when Adam and Eve, the first human beings who literally had an easier, more blessed life than anyone in history ever had, when they broke God's one law that he gave them and sent mankind spiraling into sin, here's the shock. The shock is that God didn't wipe the universe clean and start over. But he didn't. Instead, he set in motion a plan to redeem some of the descendants of Adam and Eve. Here's the true shock. Not that God chooses only some people for salvation. The true shock is that God chose you. The true shock is that God chose me. Don't fall for the subtle lie that somehow perhaps you were slightly more deserving of salvation because you had the wisdom to seek God. Romans 3 says no one seeks God. No, you only turn to Christ because God the Father decided you would. And then the Holy Spirit regenerated your heart, by the way, without you asking, John chapter 3, and enabled you to have faith in Christ and repent as God's gift to you, Ephesians 2. There's a third reason we may struggle with God's choice. A low view of the sovereignty of God. A low view of the sovereignty of God. As an example, and I love it when these things kind of intersect, this morning we examined the murder of the baby boys in Bethlehem. In Matthew 2, a low view of the sovereignty of God would say, this is a tragedy which God could have stopped and he should have stopped, where we stand in judgment over God. A high view of the sovereignty of God 
says that according to Jeremiah 31, 16 through 18 that we read this morning, those babies will be in the kingdom of God for all eternity. And yes, they were murdered in this life. But the eternal reality is that none of them had a chance to actively rebel against God and are at this moment in heaven before the throne of the Lord Jesus Christ. Let me put it to you this way. It's illogical to say, I believe God is sovereign, and yet he's not 100% in charge of who gets saved. That's illogical. Let me walk through this logic for you. It's self-contradictory. So, just be consistent. Here's the consistent view. If God is only partly responsible for the salvation of the saved, that means logically that God is only partly responsible or partly in control of all things. That, That has to be the logical next step. And if God is only partly in control of all things, that means he is unable to control all things. If God is unable to control all things and God is not all powerful, if God is not all powerful, what makes you think that when you die, his promise to take you to heaven will hold? If God is not all powerful, which is the logical result of not believing in the total sovereignty of God, if God's not all powerful, then when Paul asserted in 2 Corinthians 5.8 that being away from your body means being at home with the Lord, logically it should be phrased like this. We would rather be away from the body and at home with the Lord because almost every single time a Christian dies, he goes to heaven. It's 99% certain. What? What if I'm in the 1%? Well, we do pretty well. I mean, those are good odds. That's not an all-powerful God. If you're not going to believe in the total sovereignty of God, then if you're consistent, the entire theology of God himself comes apart at the seams. And if you're honest, what you're really doing is acting like a deist. That God leaves most things to human choice and activity and it's really up to us. There's a fourth reason that believing in the total sovereignty of God, his right to choose may be difficult A high view of theology and a low view of Scripture. A high view of theology and a low view of Scripture. We love theology at Grace Bible Church. We we study theology. We have have theology classes. But theology is not not, not the aim. Theology is not inspired. Theology is the result of that which is inspired. Because theology, which isn't based in an objective study of Scripture, and instead on, on proof texting, a false belief that you've already had in your heart. That's the worst form of deception, the worst form of falsehood. An objective look at the Bible would reveal a God who is completely and utterly sovereign. This is God's pattern from Genesis to Revelation. Let me just give you a a brief look at a very few instances that would reveal that God always does what God wants. Exodus 4, Exodus 7, Exodus 9, Exodus 10, Exodus 11, Exodus 14. God purposefully hardened Pharaoh's heart so that he would rebel against God so that God would glorify himself by crushing Pharaoh's army at the Red Sea. Well, that doesn't sound fair. No Bible verse that says God is fair. During the conquest of Canaan, God hardened the hearts of Israel's enemies specifically for the purpose of their annihilation, that they would receive no mercy Joshua 11, verse 20, For it was of Yahweh to strengthen their hearts to meet Israel in battle in order that he might devote them to destruction, that they might receive no mercy, but that he might destroy them, just as Yahweh had commanded Moses. God's choice. When Israel was in the beginning stages of the conquest, Sihon, king of Heshbon, was in their way. He wouldn't let Israel pass peacefully through their land. And they asked politely, can we just pass through? We we don't want your land. We're going on to the land God promised. Sihon said no. So Israel crushed Sihon, took all his land and made it part of Israel. Why? Deuteronomy 2.30, Sihon, king of Heshbon, was not willing for us to pass through his land. For Yahweh your God stiffened his spirit and made his heart obstinate in order to give him over into your hand. God wanted Israel to have Sion's land, so God hardened his heart so that he would be crushed in battle and the land becomes Israel's. Well, that's not fair. No verse in the Bible says God is fair. Genesis 50 verse 20 records Joseph's explanation as to why 
he was forgiving his brothers for having sold him into slavery. That, that's pretty good forgiveness, wouldn't you think? He sold me into slavery, ruined my whole life, but I forgive you. Why did he forgive them? He said, as for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good. That's sovereignty. When Job encountered his horrific tragedy of losing all his possessions and all of his children, he openly attributed this to God. And this wasn't blame. This was simply theological fact to him. Job 121, Yahweh gave and Yahweh has taken away. Blessed be the name of Yahweh. Job 2 verse 10, shall we indeed accept good from God and not calamity? What does that say? All good things from, come from God, all calamity comes from God. And Job was okay with it. God decreed in Isaiah 6 that Isaiah was to go and preach repentance to the rebellious Israelites, but God was going to render them unable to repent. And Isaiah, a reasonable question, Lord, how long will my preaching be completely useless? And God said, until cities are devastated and without inhabitant, houses are without people, the land is devastated to desolation, and Yahweh has removed men far away, and the forsaken places are many in the midst of the land. Ah, in other words, for my entire ministry. Yes. God actively decreed destruction when judgment was his plan. 1 Kings 14.10 I am bringing evil on the house of Jeroboam. 2 Kings 24.2 Yahweh sent marauding bands against Judah to destroy it. Jeremiah 21 verse 7 Then afterwards declares Yahweh I will give over Zedekiah king of Judah and his servants and the people to the sword. And those are just a few examples. We could have done a whole day on this. But an honest, objective look at Scripture shows very clearly a God who is sovereign and always acts according to the counsel of his own will. One Christian writer wrote of a time shortly after he became a Christian, and it's interesting, he had been an atheist. And as an atheist, he decided he was going to be the first one to really prove the, the merits of atheism. So he decided to read the Bible. He was going to read it all the way through so that he could intelligently explain why he doesn't believe in God. Well, you know the power of the word of God. By the time he reached the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ, he was utterly convinced of the truthfulness and the inspiration of Scripture, got on his knees, and came to faith in Christ. It's a great suggestion, by the way. I don't believe in, I don't believe in God. Great. Read the Bible. But he was in a very unique position. As a brand new believer in Christ who had just read the entire Bible, he had no formal training, he was completely unchurched, he'd never been in church, he had no teaching of any kind, and in the, in the first couple of months after he got saved, he read the whole Bible through four times. Because he didn't know anything. He didn't hear sermons, he didn't uh, read Bible studies, he wasn't in the church at all, like uh, a lot of even unbelievers have been. Well, just a few months after becoming a Christian, he got into a friendly debate with a family friend about the doctrine of election. But this young man figured out very quickly he was over his head. He was hearing all kinds of terms he'd never come across before. But here are the terms that he heard. He heard things like doctrines of grace and Calvinist. And he got really blown away when somebody said, well, you believe in tulip. What? I believe in a flower? Yeah, you believe in the doctrines of grace. You know, uh, total depravity, unconditional election, limited atonement, irresistible grace, perseverance of the saints. He's like, I, I don't even know what you're talking about. And he said to his older friend, okay, back up, hang on a minute. What is a Calvinist? And his older friend did a double take and he said, how did you become a Calvinist without even knowing what it is? And the guy said, I don't know. I just read the Bible. I just read the Bible and that's what the Bible teaches that God sovereignly chooses everything and everybody. Why should you believe that God sovereignly chooses? Can I give you the simplest of all reasons? He is God. He is God. All caps. He is God. Here's a second application key word is purity. Purity. Nehemiah 7 clearly expresses God's concern for the purity of God's people. You notice that Nehemiah said that God put it in his heart to check the lineage of each of the people claiming to be Jews who would live in Jerusalem. 
And in this case, the purity of God's people is conveyed in that only genuine Israelites were to occupy Jerusalem, that Israel and Jerusalem in this era were to be kept holy. But there is an expression of this concern for purity in the church as well, as taught by the Lord Jesus himself. Now, before I get to that directly, let me ask you this question. What do unbelievers, those with no biblical understanding of the church, what do they believe about the church? Well, let me dive into that for a minute. Generally, they believe that the church is a platform and a medium to be used for their purposes, to be used by others. And since we have an election coming up, let me give you, uh, let me give you some thoughts from both sides of the aisle, just for fun. One official statement from a well-known political organization says, quote, Faith can be a powerful bond that compels us to serve our community and unite around a common purpose. Don't be fooled. Let me translate that for you. Your church is a tool in our hands to serve our agenda and unite around our purposes. The same official statement says that they are committed to, quote, tolerance, promoting social justice, and improving the well-being of others. These are all values consistent with the teachings of faith communities. Translation, we will interpret your faith in a way that furthers our agenda. The same statement we will work to foster relationships with our nonprofit allies and faith leaders across the country to improve our beloved communities. Translation, we want to use your church to seem compassionate because the goal of our organization is to control society for its own good. In other words, these seemingly nice statements are actually all wicked statements aimed at defining for us what the church is supposed to be for their benefit. And a little commercial, those statements brought to you by the Democratic National Committee. But they're not the only ones completely ignorant about the Church of Jesus Christ. We could go to the complete other side of the aisle if you want to put it in those terms. In recent months, the idea of Christian nationalism is skyrocketing. Even churches calling themselves things like Patriot Church. And they see the role of the church as taking back the country for conservative ideals. They view the purpose of the church as mobilizing for political action and for activism, that that's what we're here for. There's nothing wrong with this. There's nothing wrong with it. And we love the idea of believers being active in politics, holding office and so forth. But Christian nationalism is nothing more than a politicized form of post-millennial false theology that says that we're going to Christianize the world one nation at a time and America is first. We're most important. And then Christ will return. And it misuses the church in the name of a completely different program than what God has designed. So the question is, what is the purpose of the church? Not to repeat myself for the 10,000th time, but it's everywhere at Grace Bible Church. Him we proclaim that we may present everyone mature in Christ. The purpose of the church is the proclamation of Christ by the gathered worship of God's people with the effect of discipling and maturing the saints. Now, that's a long way around to get back to the purity of the church. What's the connection? The ultra-liberal idea of the church being a social action force and the ultra-conservative idea of the church being a political action force both depend on trying to get anyone and everyone involved in the church so that the church can be used for the purposes of those outside the church. And so what do you do when you have either of those views? Well, the goal then is to get as many people into the church as possible so that you can use as many of them as possible for your purposes. What does that have to do with purity? The biblical view of the church is one of purity, that the church is made up of the redeemed in Christ whose lives demonstrate repentance and obedience to Christ. And part of the purity of, that, of the church, far from growth at all costs, far from inclusiveness, the church is to make a distinction between those who want to follow Christ under the biblical gospel and those who want to fake it or be troublemakers or be Christian nationalists or refuse spiritual correction. This is not the church being perfectionistic. This is the church following the commands of Christ to purify the body. How do you purify the body? Theologians call it church discipline. Some think that, well, Matthew 18 is kind of the lone case of church discipline and restoration in the New Testament. Far from it. 
Matthew 18, beginning in verse 15. Now, if your brother sins, go and show him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you have won your brother. But if he does not listen to you, take one or two more with you, so that by the mouth of two or three witnesses, every fact may be confirmed. And if he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as the Gentile and the tax collector. What does that mean? It means primarily that the church has the authority to discipline wayward believers up to and including excluding them from the fellowship. Wait a minute, I thought the church was supposed to be inclusive. No, the church is supposed to be holy. How about 1 Corinthians 5, 1 through 11? Paul is addressing this sick situation in which a member of the church is in an immoral relationship with his own stepmother. Paul's admonition in verse 2 is, let him who has done this be removed from among you. In verse 5, you are to deliver this man to Satan for the destruction of the flesh so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. Verse 9, purge the evil person from among you. This is hard teaching and it's not very American, is it? In fact, Paul uses this occasion to remind the church that anyone who has publicly called himself a brother, that meaning he's been baptized before the church, he's declared himself a follower of, life, of Christ, and yet he continues to unrepentantly live a double life. Paul says in verses 9 and verse 11, don't associate with that person. He's not talking about unbelievers who haven't professed Christ. We share the gospel with them. He's talking about those who have presented themselves as believers and yet continued as sexually immoral, as the greedy, the swindlers, the idolaters, the revilers, meaning abusers and liars, the drunkards. In chapter 6, he adds to that list people who will not inherit the kingdom of God, adulterers, people who practice homosexuality, thieves. He says, have nothing to do with them. They don't get to be a part of the body until they repent. 2 Corinthians 2, 6 and 7, Paul is now revisiting the church discipline situation. Maybe the same one in 1 Corinthians 5. If that person repents, Paul gives instruction in 2 Corinthians 2. For such a one, this punishment by the congregation or the majority is enough. So that you should rather turn and forgive and comfort him. That's the restoration part. But the church has been purified in that that person has repented. Galatians 6, 1. Paul describes the beginning of the process and what the eventual hope and aim is. Brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in the spirit of gentleness. Keep watch on yourself, lest you too be tempted. But that's the beginning stage. We're to be responsible for one another. When we see observable sin, we're to help. How about Ephesians 5.11? What is the church's attitude to be toward wickedness? Cover it up. Hope it goes away. Use this phrase the church is a hospital and people are here to just get better over a long period of time we won't talk about repentance that's too harsh no ephesians 5 11 says take no part in the unfruitful works of darkness but instead expose them expose it's a word that means to reprove to confront how about first thessalonians 5 14 paul tells us to admonish the idle literally the disorderly the insubordinate it means to correct them to redirect them 2 Thessalonians 3, 6-15, through 15, we get a long section in which Paul basically says, keep away from any brother who's walking in idleness and not in accordance with the tradition that you receive from us. This is the troublemaker. This is the one who's out of step doctrinally and trying to sway others to be out of step doctrinally. This is the person who's spending too much time on making trouble instead of doing the business of life, working hard, staying busy. And Paul gives a command in Verses 14 and 15, it's a good summary of how to treat the rebellious, professing believer. If anyone does not obey what we say in this letter, take note of that person, have nothing to do with him, that he may be ashamed. Do not regard him as an enemy, but warn him as a brother. What does that mean? It means you're not treating him like he's, a, like he's the enemy. You're simply saying, you and I aren't going to fellowship. We're not going to hang out together. We're not going to play tennis. We're not going to have Bible study together. You're in this heinous sin you won't repent of, and that's all I'm going to talk to you about. You need to repent. How about 1 Timothy 1, 19 and 20? And if you're counting, this is the eighth instance of discipline in the New Testament. Paul says that some are holding faith in a good conscience, by rejecting this, some have made shipwreck of their faith, among whom are Alexander or Hymenaeus and Alexander, whom I have handed over to Satan that they may learn not to blaspheme. And there's several things missing here. There's four steps missing. Confidentiality is missing. Extensive lengthy counseling sessions are min- missing. 
These are leaders in the church who are troublemakers. And Paul says, you're out. Don't let the door hit you on the way. 1 Timothy 5, 19 and 20, Paul tells Timothy, the apostolic representative of Paul, how the church is to handle it when someone brings an accusation against an elder, an accusation of something observable, serious and unrepentant by that elder. He says, you rebuke that elder in the presence of all. Why? So that the rest may stand in fear. 2 Timothy 3, 5, Paul is about to give a list. This is a list of what false believers can look like He says this, but understand this, in the last days there will be times of difficulty. People will be lovers of self, lovers of money, proud, arrogant, abusive, disobedient to their parents, ungrateful, unholy, heartless, unappeasable, slanderous, without self-control, brutal, not loving good, treacherous, reckless, swollen with deceit, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God. And here's the key, having the appearance of godliness, but denying its power. In other words, they're They're saying they're believers, but their lives don't show it. What does he say to do? Avoid such people. It's a simple conversation. Brother, maybe you're a brother, maybe you're not, because your life looks like a pagan. I enjoy our time hanging out. I enjoy worshiping together with you, but I'm not going to. And no one else should until you repent of this. Avoid such people. Titus 3, 9 through 11. What do you do with a defiant troublemaker? Warn him once, then twice, have nothing more to do with him. Hebrews thirteen seventeen, Obey your leaders and submit to them for they're keeping watch over your souls. Let them do this with joy and not with groaning for that would be of no advantage to you. I've been in elder meetings where we're discussing how to shepherd a member who just is continuing to be wayward and challenging and rebellious and I have literally heard the groans and the sorrow of elders. I've seen some of your elders weep over the sheer emotional exhaustion and spiritual exhaustion of confronting the wayward over and over and over again with no sign of repentance. How about 2 John 10? What do you do with someone who wants to bring a new teaching into the local church? Maybe a member who wants to challenge the good theology of the church. 2 John 10 says, If anyone comes to you and does not bring this teaching, do not receive him into your house or give him any greeting. What does that mean? With false teachers, you don't make a pretend show of friendship. You don't buddy up to them. You stay away from them. Jude 23. Jude, the half-brother of Jesus, tells us how we ought to look out for each other, how serious sin is to be to us. In Jude 23, we save others by snatching them out of the fire to show others, to others show mercy with fear, hating even the garment stained by the flesh. Is God concerned for the purity of his people? I think the New Testament makes it pretty clear. So what are we to do? Hebrews 10, 24 and 25. And this is like a a campfire on a cold night. Let us consider how to stimulate one another to love and good deeds. Not forsaking our own assembling together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another. And all the more as you see the day drawing near. See, a local church will never experience the favor of God by trying to please men. We only experience the favor of God by trying to please God. And that means a purified church. I'll give you one more application and we won't spend as long on this one. The key word for this is service. Service. Now, thinking back to Ezra and Nehemiah, the traditional preaching approach, and I've listened to numbers of sermons and read a couple of books on Ezra and Nehemiah, but the traditional approach to preaching this generally ignores the fact that this is one book First of all, Ezra and Nehemiah. And second, especially in Nehemiah, it tends to focus on the leadership of Nehemiah. I have lost track of the number of sermon series from Nehemiah on leadership. Now, leadership from Nehemiah and coming back to Jerusalem, raising funds, leaving the people to complete the wall and the gates and rebuilding the city. It's outstanding. It's clearly used by God. But if you want to identify the main character that the text actually highlights, the main character of Ezra and Nehemiah It's the people. They're the main character. They're continually the focus. The people are to do the work assigned by God. That the people are to occupy the holy city. That the people are to hear and obey the word of God. Nehemiah chapter 8 coming up. That the people are the focus of the return. That the people will ultimately demonstrate at the end of Ezra and Nehemiah that without the new covenant they will always drift toward rebellion and spiritual drift. 
I pointed out last week that one of the major errors of the Roman Catholic religion going all the way back to the 3rd century in Cyprian of Carthage was beginning to equate the church with its leaders, with the bishops themselves being the church. The church is not her leaders. The church is her people, which happens to include her leaders. And the interplay between leadership and the people in Ezra and Nehemiah is seen in the leaders calling the people to obedience, calling the people to faith, calling the people to purity, calling the people to love, calling the people to covenant loyalty to the Lord. The people need to be empowered to do the work of the ministry. That doesn't negate the important role of the leadership, but this is exactly in line with God's design of the church. It's in line with Ephesians 4, 11, and 12 that Christ gave some as apostles and some as prophets and some as evangelists and some as pastors and teachers for the equipping of the saints for the work of service to the building up of the body of Christ. The equipping provided by the leadership is for you to do the work of the ministry. And that's a church that's thriving and that's filled with joy. Now, part of the role of the leadership is to provide ministry opportunities to the people I don't know if you realize this, or maybe if you're involved with a lot of it, you do realize it, but we start something new pretty much every year at Grace Bible Church. And and the reason, very simply, is to have more things for people to do. And part of the role of leadership is to encourage that any member can have as big an impact for the kingdom as he likes. And this doesn't happen a lot here, but once in a while we'll have a member who says, you know, I, I, I feel like I'm being underutilized. When somebody says that to me, I can give you 50 ideas in about one minute. Decide to evangelize your entire neighborhood. Have you done that yet? No? Well, then don't be underutilized anymore. Decide to invite 50 people to church in one year. Decide to hand out 100 gospel tracts per year for five years. Decide to be trained in Bible Training Institute and aim to lead or co-lead a small group. Just serve, serve, serve. We say this all the time here. Live your life in the church. You see, for 2,000 years, God has built his church through the church, not through programs outside the church he's built the church through the church but what's your motivation your motivation is love for christ and love for the gospel that's the motivation we just enjoyed pastor appreciation month the month of october it's it's both a a great and and a little bit awkward month for us as pastors because it's we, we enjoy the thankfulness that you express and that means a lot but that's not the entire reason we're here. And, and because of that, and because Grace Bible Church, at least in my mind, is the most gracious church ever on planet Earth, you're a kind and, and merciful church. You have given me so much feedback. You encourage me all the time, every week. There isn't a week that goes by that some of you don't encourage me. But you know something I have never heard once, and I am so very glad? Nobody in my decade at Grace Bible Church has ever said, Steve, I'm serving with all my heart in the church for you for your sake, to please you. That would make me so uncomfortable, I'd crawl out of my skin if somebody ever said that. No, we serve alongside one another for Christ, don't we? For Christ and for the gospel. So our three applications, the Jews in Nehemiah's day, they were recipients of the sovereign choice of God, just like we are. They were to be a purified group, just like we are, and they were to render service to the Lord. That was their purpose. That's what they were there for. And all three of those principles are true for us in the church of Jesus Christ as well. Could you bear with me for about two more minutes? Could I just show you one more thing? What's the pattern here? The pattern is Nehemiah gathers and he opens basically a book. And in that book, it decides who gets to go to Jerusalem. God is in the habit of repeating himself in Scripture so that we see his themes. Let me just show you one last thing. Turn with me to Revelation 20, and we'll finish with this. The pattern in Nehemiah 7, he opens a book, and the book decides who goes into Jerusalem. Revelation 20, verse 11. Then I saw a great white throne in him who sits upon it. Stop right there for a moment. John chapter 5, the Lord Jesus says that all judgment has been given from the Father to him 
who is the judge who sits upon the great white throne. It is the glorified Lord Jesus Christ from whose presence earth and heaven fled away and no place was found for them. Then I saw the dead, the great and the small, standing before the throne and the books were opened and another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged from the things that were, which were written in the books according to their deeds. And the sea gave up the dead which were in it and the the de- and death and Hades gave up the dead which were in them and they were judged, every one of them, according to their deeds. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. And if anyone's name was not found written in what? In the book. In the book of life, he is thrown into the lake of fire. You're qualified by being in the book. And what happens once you're qualified? Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth passed away and there is no longer any sea. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, made ready as a bride, adorned for her husband. If your name is in the book, you go to Jerusalem. If it isn't, you don't. It's not too late. You're still alive, as we said this morning. And you may find your name in the book by coming to faith in Christ. You must be in the book. Did you notice that there were other books opened? What are those books? Those are the official records of every sinful thought, every sinful deed, every sinful action, every sinful word you have ever done, opened, and you were condemned for all eternity based on what you did. Not based on God's opinion, based on the facts. Don't have those books open. Does a book like that exist for you as a Christian? I I don't know if it does. It's blank. Because the Lord Jesus Christ took the penalty for every one of those sins. What's the pattern in, in Nehemiah 7? Find your name in the book. Go to Jerusalem. Pattern in Revelation 20 and 21. Find your name in the book. Go to Jerusalem. Pattern is the same. And may we be faithful to be thankful for God's sovereign choice to live our lives in pursuit of holiness, to expend our lives for the service of the Savior so that we can, as we have sung about so much tonight, go home. So we can go home. Let's pray. Our Father, for those whose names are written in the Lamb's Book of Life who are certain of their salvation because of the assurance of faith that you give us, through the fruit of the Spirit, through the testimony of the Spirit in our own hearts, through our love for the Word of God, through our love for the people of God. We give you thanks, Lord, that our names are found in the book and that we will come home someday. Lord, I pray for any hearing this message that are uncertain if their names are in the book, that they would drop to their knees in their heart, as it were, confess their sins and ask the Lord Jesus to graciously pay the penalty for their sins so that they too could be in the book and they too could come home to new Jerusalem someday. We praise you and thank you for the clarity of your word. In Christ's name we pray, amen.